Amen. Good morning. It is awesome to be with you, however it is that you have chosen to attend. I know we've got a bunch of people online who have signed in. I had no idea that Will was going to talk about HTB and show the picture of that um, statue. Uh, I was there about two years ago, almost exactly two years ago today. I went with a group of pastors locally, and, uh, and we went and had the Alpha experience there, and it was an unbelievable experience. There are actually two of those statues. So there's one out on the street, which is the one that he showed you the picture of, and there's another one that's actually inside the foyer area of the church. And for probably six months, that was my screensaver on my phone because I was so taken with that statue. Uh, with the embrace of the Father. It was amazing. And we had the chance actually to hear the, um, the artist speak while we were there, which was really, really cool. And as Will said, you know, Alpha is a great spiritual on-ramp for you and for your friends and family. Like if you are not a believer yet, uh, or maybe you're just brand new, this is a great opportunity to get to know people. And it's a safe place to talk about your questions, your doubts, to air them out, and to work it out in, in a respectful conversation that, uh, that every perspective is respected within. So again, that's Thursday night, 7.30 online. Uh, Real Women actually started one last Wednesday, and so it continues this Wednesday at 8.15. We'd love to have you join if you are a lady. And, um, and again, it's a great place to get to know people and, and make friends. That, that's sort of the repeating refrain of Alpha is they get to the end of it, and it's like, do we have to stop, you know, because we, we really like each other, and this, is, this has been really helpful and meaningful. So I want to invite you into that. I want to invite you into personal worship where we take our passage of Scripture that we talk about on Sundays and that Sam and Mark unpack in far greater depth in the podcast later in the week, and we break it up into sections and we add little supplemental verses and discussion questions. That, too, is a great spiritual on-ramp here at Rio. We'd love to have you participate in that. It's all free. It's on our free phone app. Just sign up for it, get the phone app, you know, turn on your notifications for that. And then also, as Will said, the podcast comes out, I guess, now on Friday. It used to be Thursday. And what these guys are doing is taking what we're talking about on Sundays, or at least this passage of Scripture, and going way deep. So I point all these things out to you because if you're kind of wondering what your spiritual growth opportunities are, those are sort of the basics. Those are the get started spiritual opportunities. And those are the kind of things that if you build into the rhythm of your life, God's really going to enrich you spiritually. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It is, as Ryan said, it's a supernatural word. The reality is God creates through his word. He speaks and then it is, okay? So with all that in mind, uh, as we continue today with our study of the books of First and Second Kings, we come to chapters 4 and 5, and with it to sort of the twin topics of the wisdom of God, and then of the unbelievable wealth that God, God, through the wisdom he gave to Solomon, also gave to Solomon. Why do I say it that way? Because last week we got together and we looked at chapter 3, and at the beginning of the reign of King Solomon as the king of Israel, God came to him, and he asked him the question that we all wish God would come and ask of us. He said, hey, buddy, what do you want from me? Ask anything of me, and I'm going to give it to you. That's a pretty sweet request. We all start running through our own lists. I want health. I want wealth. I want dominance over all of my adversaries for the whole of my life. I want rich relationships with my spouse and with my kids and with my friends and all of these other things. Solomon's like, no, no, no. I've been humbled by life here. Like, I am seriously overawed by the responsibilities that you've given me as king. I realize that more than anything else, what I need is wisdom. And God said, I am so pleased with your request for wisdom that by the wisdom I give you, I'm going to also give you all of these other things, including wealth. And so you get to chapters four and five and you read about Solomon's awesome wealth, human resource wealth. You look at all of the leaders, you look at all of the laborers, all of these different things, and also actual material resources and wealth. 
that which we typically associate with wealth. And because I know these guys on Friday are going to deep dive on that, here's what I want to do today. I want to talk about wisdom and wealth, and I want to ask the question that what does Solomon, in his great wisdom, say about wealth? What does he say? Because he had a lot of it that he amassed through wisdom, and by his wisdom, he had the opportunity to examine it, to think it through, to experience it personally, and to say, oh my goodness, guys, I have so much to say to you in this area, and if I could take everything that he says and just boil it down to one statement, it's this. Solomon teaches us to trust in God and not in wealth, that's it. And he does it again and 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 again. I'm going to give you three examples. So he comes to us, for example, in Proverbs 18, verse 11, and he says, a rich man's wealth. Okay, it's frustrating. I know we're four words in. I want to stop for a second because we got to talk about the rich man. Because if I don't stop and talk about the rich man, you're not going to get anything else that he has to say about this. And here's the deal. We hear a rich man's wealth. Okay, and the majority of us are going, praise Jesus, whatever comes next is not for me. Because we don't think we're the rich man. And then, you know, some of us are going, oh, good grief, you know. What are they doing at Calvary Chapel, right? You're signing out. I don't want to hear this because I know that it's for me. And I just want to stop and go, no, no, no. The rich man in the Bible is not measured in terms of wealth. He might have great wealth. He might have nothing. It's not measured in terms of, of how much you have. It's measured in terms of who or what you trust. The rich man in the Bible trusts in wealth and not God. And we see examples of this, famous examples. You know, you read through the Old Testament and you come to Abraham, father of our faith. The New Testament reveres Abraham. Guys, Abraham was as wealthy as a king. Hear that. But he didn't trust in it. And he proved again and again in his life that he'd walk away from everything if that's what God called him to do. Leave your land. Leave your household, right? Leave, leave, leave it all behind Abraham and go to the land that I'm going to show you. That's how his story begins. Abraham, take your one and only son, the one you love, Isaac, sacrifice him. Now, he doesn't actually have to kill him. God spares his son in the end. But what does the Lord say? Now I know that I'm number one. I'm the one you trust. It's remarkable. So Abraham has great wealth, but it doesn't have him. That's the idea. He doesn't trust in it. You get to the New Testament, you find Judas Iscariot. He is not a wealthy guy. He's followed Jesus around for three years, and you realize at the very end of his story why he followed Jesus around for three years. Because it wasn't because he loved Jesus. It was because he thought that Jesus was going to take over the world, basically, that he was going to become the new king of Israel, and that he would then be close to power and close to position and close to prestige and close to... Money, he's the guy who carried the money and managed the finances for the group. We read about all of these things. And when he realizes, oh, okay, wait a minute, so that's not how the story's going to end. I'm not going to get anything out of this deal. He goes to Jesus' adversaries and says, all right, I'm I'm ready to cash out. You know, like, what can I get to betray God in the flesh to his death? 30 pieces of silver, that's the best deal I can make. I'll take it. It's not how much you have or don't. It's who or what you trust in. And please hear that you don't want to be the rich man. Like the Bible comes and everywhere it speaks of the rich man, nowhere is it positive. The rich man in the Bible and in Proverbs in particular is synonymous with the evil man, with the wicked man, with the unrighteous man. Solomon's going, look, you know, you don't have to be this guy. 
In fact, don't be this guy. And by the way, Jesus suffered and died to pay for all the ways that that you've been this guy. So here's the deal. He says, a rich man's wealth, which if you think about the nature of wealth, is itself tangible. I know we're a cashless society for the most part at this point. But the things that we buy with it, at the very least, are tangible. Wealth is something you can see, smell, hear, taste, or touch, or at least then you can buy things that you can see, smell, hear, taste, or touch. You can count it. It's measurable. You can save it. You can hoard it. You can store it. You can invest it. You can grow it. You can lose it. It's tangible. I can see it, smell it, hear it, taste it, touch it. A rich man's wealth, he says, in his wisdom, is his strong city. It's what he trusts in for safety, for security, for significance, for satisfaction. And it's like, he says, a high wall, but where? Because this is where it all comes undone, in his imagination. He's like, listen, he thinks that his wealth is a strong and unassailable city. He thinks that his wealth is a wall that insulates him from destruction, and it's not. That's what he thinks, but that's imaginary. It's not the case. And anyone who has ever watched someone of great means suffer and then die from a terminal illness knows that that is, in fact, the case. Look, they might have more treatment options. You know, They might be able to extend their life or make it more comfortable You know, for another day or another week or another month or another year, maybe even a couple of years. But what is that next to eternity? It is zero. It is nothing. It's nada. It still ends the same way. Solomon is coming to us and he's like, guys, ah, king and wise and amassed a lot and really observant and the spirit enables me to have wisdom about all of these things. Let me give you a little insight for your help. What you're trusting in, if it's wealth, cannot in the end give you what you want because what you want is life. And when your life ends, you leave it all behind. It's over. You want emotional life? It's not there. You want spiritual life? It's not there. You want physical life? Yeah, not there either. It's important, it's significant, it's helpful, we need it very practically, but it's not the thing to trust in is the idea. He says, all right, so here's the deal. Rich man, strong city, that's his wealth. High high wall, pure illusion. And now compare that, what he says in verse 11, to what he says immediately before in verse 10 because he's comparing these two things. In verse 10 he comes and he says the name of the Lord, which we sang about, by the way, today, and which is intangible. The name of the Lord stands for the I can't see him, smell him, hear him, taste him, touch him, God. He is the God who is spirit. He is not tangible. And so he's weighing these things, the tangible versus the intangible, off against each other. And he's like, ironically, the name of the Lord, that which is intangible, is what? is a strong tower. Not in imagination, but in fact. And so then what does the righteous man do? He says the righteous man runs into it and he's safe. He's saying, guys, cardinal rule when it comes to wealth. Don't trust in it, trust in God. You see it again in Proverbs 28, verse 11, where Solomon says a rich man, so here he is again, the guy who trusts in wealth and not God. He says a rich man is wise, but only in his eyes. He thinks that he's wise, but a poor man who trusts in God and not wealth, and who therefore has understanding, real wisdom, will find him out. What it actually says is that the poor man who has wisdom, who trusts in God and not wealth, literally sees right through him. That's the way that it says it. And what he sees is that he's not somebody to be envied, but instead that he's somebody to be pitied. And why is that? Because when he looks at him, he realizes, man, everything you're trusting in is going to fail you. 
If not, like, soon, then eventually it is going to... And when it does, it's going to be utterly devastating. You think you're safe, you're not. You think you're secure, you're not. You think you're significant because you have a lot of this, and then a pandemic comes, and the economy tanks. And not just your net worth is hit, but your self-worth is hit because you've tied these two things together. Oh, and again, you get to the end of your life and you leave it all behind. And so then where is your value? He's like, no, 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 I see the end and I see the end and it's, it's pitiable. It's not a good thing. Solomon is teaching us to trust in God and not in wealth. We see it again. I'll just give you one more example. In Proverbs 30, beginning in verse 7, this famous prayer of some guy named Agur that Solomon takes and he puts into his proverbial statements. He puts it into the word of the Lord. It's inspired and it's brilliant. It's an amazing prayer. The man says, two things I ask of you, O God, deny them not to me before I die. Okay, thing number one. And if you don't grant thing number one, I don't even make it to thing number two. Like I won't even be able to say it. He says, remove far from me falsehood and lying. What is he talking about? He's saying, look, there's something I want you to take from me, and if you don't take this from me, I'm not going to ask you to give me the next thing because my heart can't be trusted on this topic. I'm going to talk to you about wealth. I'm going to talk to you about possessions. I'm going to try to be honest with you, Lord, but one of the things that I realize is that there is no area of my life in which I am more easily deceived, neither is there an area in my life in which I am more blind because, truthfully, I want to be. The blindest person is the one who refuses to see. And he's like, that's me. I, you know, I don't really want to hear about this. I don't really want to talk about this. I'd like for you to leave me the heck alone when it comes to this. And so here's what I need you to do on the front end. If we're even going to get to this, I, I need you to give me an honest heart. And God answers his prayer because he continues and he asks for thing two. He's like, okay, heart's honest. Here's what I'm going to say. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Why? Because as he'll explain, he's like, my heart can't handle either. Too much or too little is not good for my soul. Like, if you give me too much, that's a problem. If you give me too little, that's a problem. So then God, he says, feed me with the food that is needful for me. Or as Jesus said, give me this day my daily bread, right? Not enough to feed an army, just just enough for today. Why? Lest I be full and deny you and say who is the Lord. He's saying, look, God, at some point I'm going to have so much of this, I'm not even going to think about you. That's a problem. But don't make me poor either. Like, don't give me too little, he says, lest I become poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Solomon is coming to us and he's like, guys, listen, you know, I don't mean to brag here, really, like just total transparency. God endowed me with a wisdom that no one ever else had except for Jesus. He's infinitely greater, got that, but everybody else... And I amassed unbelievable wealth. I'm the wealthiest king that ever Israel had, and I'm one of the wealthiest kings in history. And given the size of my country, which is small relative to some of these other empires, that's quite a statement. So I, with my wisdom, amassed great wealth, and I, with my wisdom, examined great wealth and its strengths and its weaknesses, the things that it can do and what it cannot do. And here's where I've landed. Trust in God, not in wealth. So the follow-up question is, all right, how do I know if I'm doing that? Because truthfully, <laughs> my heart's a little like agar. I don't know that I, you know, like, I don't know that I'm totally honest on this. Lord, 
remove falsehood from me so we can have this conversation. And Solomon comes and goes, well, let me give you some for instances, okay? Let me give you some markers. Let me give you some litmus tests. Let me give you some things to consider. He says, if you're wondering whether or not you trust God versus wealth or the other way around, well, then look at your generosity because our trust in God should make us generous. In fact, of all of the people on the planet, Christians should be the most generous people. And the reason for that is simple and it's even obvious. And what is it? Because we've been detached from this idea that our safety, that our security, that our significance, that our you know satisfaction in life, all these things that apparently begin with S, are tied to wealth. And we've found it all in the embrace of our Father instead. So having what I'm looking for in this, I can do whatever he then directs me to do with this. That's the point. Solomon says, all right, I mean, if you're wondering, then check out your generosity. Check out your generosity toward God. He speaks of that directly. Proverbs 3, verse 9, he says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits, meaning the first and the best of all of your produce. Why? Because God needs it. I mean, it's expensive running the universe, you know. He sits up there in the boardroom of heaven and he goes, I don't know, you know. Guys, I mean, if uh, if the Hendrixes don't come through with the tithe check this week, I'm going to have to let one of you go. You know, like, it's not the way it works. Ridiculous. It's because I need it. It's because you need it. The reality is that unless this rhythm, and that's what the Bible calls us to, it calls us to a rhythm of generosity in our lives that's built in. It calls us to things like tithing. It calls us to things like giving to the poor and all of these other things. As the Lord directs, whatever it is that he directs, it calls us to build this rhythmically and regularly into our lives so that regularly we're coming to God for the good of our own soul and we're going, okay, so here's the deal. I trust in you and not in this for whatever. And regularly, God, I need to give this to you because if I don't, I'm going to trust in this. I'm going to live for this. For the sake of my own soul, you require me to worship you with wealth so that I might regularly be reminded that, okay, yeah, that's right. I trust in God and not in wealth. I'm called to that. Our trust in God should make us generous toward God, but then it should make us also generous toward others. This is so powerful. Proverbs 3, beginning in verse 27. Listen to what the Lord through Solomon says. He says, do not withhold good. Okay, so what is good? What is he talking about? He's talking about things that you and I possess that could be used for the good of people in need. So then listen to the rest of the statement. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due. Literally, it says, from its owners. You're like, oh, hang on a second. Because I'm pretty sure I've held title to that, right? Like that's in my bank account and I earned that and I've worked for that and I've saved that or I bought that or whatever the case may be. Like, I, I mean, if we went down to the courthouse and it's me and somebody else who might need it, I win every time. God's like, not in the courtroom of heaven, you don't. It's different. He says, do not withhold good. That which you have that could be used for the good of other people from those to whom it is due, literally from its owners, when it is in your power to do it, to give it, to help them with it. He's saying, I transfer title from you to them in that moment. And now you're withholding what they own. That's uncomfortable. He says, do not say to your neighbor who comes to you in need, go and come again tomorrow and I'll give it when you have it with you. He's like, you know, just do it. I've transferred the title in heaven. Just do it. 
And it's hard to do that. It's difficult to do that. And yet it's in the doing of things like that. It's in the trusting of God in this most practical, I can see it, smell it, hear it, taste it, touch it. I can count it. I can measure it area of our lives that we give God the opportunity to prove that he can be trusted. As we divest, we realize that he comes through for us in ways that no one ever anticipated. And you realize in that moment, good grief, that is the Lord. Like, And he's come through for me in a way that's really tangible. I can count it. I can measure it. I can store it. The only people we are depriving with our generosity, or maybe I should say the primary people we are depriving with our generosity is ourself if we're not generous. So anyway, Solomon says, look, if you want to know if you trust in God or in wealth, check out your generosity toward God, toward others. But secondly, um, take a look at your contentment with what you've got. Like, how is your level of contentment right now? Because that's a, that's a key indicator. Our trust in God should make us content with what we have. So in other words, not only should we as Christians be the most generous people on the planet, we should also be the most content. Why? Because we're not looking for satisfaction. We're not looking for safety, security, etc. in this stuff. So we don't have to chase it. We don't have to run ourselves ragged to get it. We don't have to sacrifice relationships to get it, etc. It's like, this is not our God. It's not the source of our life. And so, therefore, we have the ability to be content. It frees us from what will otherwise be an insatiable craving for more. Solomon in his wisdom goes, yeah, that's the way it works. Listen to this one. Proverbs 27, verse 20 says, Sheol and Abaddon. Okay, i got to stop. Like, we don't use those words, okay? No idea. What does that mean? It's the realm of the dead. It's the grave. Listen to what he says about the grave. He says, Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied. 65 million people worldwide die a year. 178,000 a day. 7,425 an hour, 120 a minute. And never does the realm of the dead say, you know what, I'm full. Send them back. I, can't, I got no more, you know, it's like an old motel with the, the vacancy and you flip it around and now it's the no vacancy sign, you know, like the innkeeper of the realm of the dead never walks over to the, to the window and go, oh, sorry, you know, as you pull in with your car. It's ever receiving. It's never giving. Notice what he compares it to. He says, Sheol and Abaddon, the realm of the dead, they're never satisfied And never satisfied also is the idea, or the eyes of man. They're never full either. They're ever receiving. Unless they're full of the image of Christ, he is the only one beautiful enough to fully satisfy is the idea. So Solomon's going, okay, so here's the deal. Trust God, not wealth. Little indicators. One, check your generosity. Two, check your contentment level. Three, He says, look, your trust in God should make you honest in the production of your wealth. And so you should be the most generous, you should be the most content, and we should also be the most honest. Why? Because we don't have to steal. We don't have to lie. We don't have to cheat to get something because we know that that something is not our life, but he is. Listen to what he says in Proverbs 10, verse 2. He says, treasures gained by wickedness do not profit. Okay, all right. Let's just argue with that for a moment because we know a lot of people who have gained a lot of profit by wickedness. And, but that's not what he's talking about. He's not saying that it doesn't profit in this life. 
Sometimes it doesn't profit in this life. That's true. Sometimes you get arrested or you go to jail or whatever the case may be. But he's looking beyond the grave. He's looking beyond this life. And he's like, guys, this life is a whisper. This life is a vapor. This life is here and it's gone. And then it gives way to a life that never ends. And he's like, let me just tell you, I mean, first of all, which life should you live for? Because that one's easy. And for forever, it does not profit. He's thinking eternally, and he says, treasures gained by wickedness, the idea being in this life, do not profit the point being for forever, but righteousness, he says, delivers from death, which I think leads to the question of, okay, but then whose righteousness delivers from that kind of eternal death? Because clearly it's not going to be mine. You know, I mean, we come to a topic like this or a thousand others, and you begin to judge your life and measure it by these same criteria that he's given, and there are plenty more. And you're like... It can't be my righteousness. Generosity, contentment, honesty in the production of wealth. Trust in God, trust in wealth. Vacillation between the two, that's probably the most reasonable, right, in terms of honesty. So it's not going to be me. And that is the gospel of Jesus. You know, I mean, God saw us in all of our idolatry and he said, you know what? I love you anyway. I mean, you have rejected me for something that cannot and obviously cannot give you what you're looking for. And that's offensive and it's hurtful. But I so love you. I'm going to send my son into this world and he's going to suffer and die to pay the penalty for that so that I might have you as my children. And listen to what Paul says about him in Philippians 2, verse 6. He speaks of Jesus, and he says, "...who though he was in the form of God, where in heaven?" So let's think about wealth for a minute from the throne of the universe. Okay, that's wealth, and it's enduring. That's power, unparalleled. It's privilege. It's comfort. It's all of these things, and then some. And yet, what did he do for you? He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What a perfect image. That's it. But trusting in God, he emptied himself. How? By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, a perfect life laid down to pay the penalty for the guilty ones. Listen to what else Paul says. Speaking, actually, within the context of generosity in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, he's saying to Christians, to those who have given their lives to Jesus, he says, look, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, the idea being in heaven, yet for your sake, that he might have you, he became poor, so that by his poverty, even to the point of death, you might become rich. You might have a share in his infinite wealth for forever. It's remarkable. So Solomon, and for that matter, the Lord through Solomon is coming and he's going, okay, I'm going to talk to you, most practical of all topics. Here you go. Please, guys, your security is not in this. Your safety is not in this. Your value and worth as a person is not in this. It's not, and if it is, it's just going to be devastating difficult. When you lose that, you'll lose yourself. It's not where it's found. 
It's found in Christ. It's found in a relationship with the Heavenly Father who so loved you that he sent Jesus for you. And he's made you his son or daughter. And in that is your safety, your security, your value, all of the above. Your satisfaction, etc. Not just in this life, but for forever. Trust in him. All right? So, do you trust in God or in wealth? Because he's, he's offering you the embrace that you saw in that picture. He's saying, come on in. You see ex- how exhausted the prodigal son is? His arm's just hanging. He's like, yeah, bring it in. I got you. Trust in me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are an altogether trustworthy God. Lord, your character screams forth through your word. And it screams forth through the faithfulness, too, that we experience in our own hearts and lives. You speak, and it is. You promise, and it happens. Lord, take us in. God, convince our hearts and create by your word faith in us that believes something that is absolutely contrary to our every instinct. We instinctually lay hold of the tangible. And yet, Lord, you call us to trust in you, though you are intangible and yet real as you inhabit our hearts and lives by your Spirit. Help us to live for the next life more than this. Help us to trust in you and experience the joy of actual and authentic safety. No matter what happens in this life, even if we lose our lives, you give them back in the end. The realm of the, of the dead even is within your power. Resurrection power is, it's God, your mark. It's what you do. So I pray, Lord, that you would work in our hearts, God, that you would speak to us about this most practical of topics, that we would take up your wisdom by faith and then learn to live it as we look to be generous, as we learn to be content, as we go out and reframe and recategorize maybe our own reputations by becoming ruthlessly honest, truthful followers of the one who is himself the truth. Do these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.